Hello, everybody, and welcome to Public Health Musings. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline Kingori, a faculty member and public health researcher at Ohio University. We are happy you could join us. Today, in week two, we are joined by Dr. Michelle Moroni, who is the department chair and program coordinator for the Environmental Health Program at Ohio University. Dr. Moroni is an expert in environmental health and has published numerous papers and books on this topic. Today, she will talk to us about environmental health and its relationship with public health. Welcome, Dr. Moroni. Thank you, Caroline. It's, it's great to be here with you. Awesome. So our first question um, is more to understand, again, the journey of why you are who you are today. So what is environmental health and what made you pursue this in school as well as professionally? Well, those are two really different questions for me. Um, the first, let, let me talk about the first question, what is environmental health? So, you know, it's, it's described as a segment of public health that really focuses on the connection between environmental conditions and health outcomes. And these environmental conditions can include really big picture things like climate change, down to very micro level issues, including things like how safe is the food from the food truck you just bought. So environmental health, why, while just being a segment of public health, it really is a broad practice. But it's interesting because I did not pursue environmental health in my education. I pursued environmental planning and I was really interested more in kind of ecosystems in ecology but I've transitioned into environmental health because even though I did not directly get a degree in environmental health, really my career has been dedicated to making sure that environmental conditions are as healthy as they can be, and that would lead to improved public health. So there's a connection between environmental conditions and public health, which I didn't start out, you know, target, but I ended up here and, and it just is, really a wonderful field to be in. Awesome. And so just to piggyback on that, then what is your understanding of the overarching public health, um, you know, topic? Well, I suspect as you talk to more and more people, you know, the, 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 there's stock answers to that question. You know, when we teach public health to our introduction students or to, to, to people who don't know what public health is, you know, I always talk about it as being as from kind of a patient centered perspective um, and comparing it to uh, medical care. So, you know, from for medical care, the patient is the individual. And really what you're trying to do from that perspective or that practice is make sure that the individual stays healthy and that you can do things to maybe prevent the individual from getting ill in the future. But from the public health perspective, our patient is the community. And that community can be, you know, your neighborhood, it could be your county, your state, your country. So you define what the community is, and then we really focus on ways to keep the community, however it's defined, healthy. And of course, you know, that means individuals have to be healthy too, but we focus on keeping the community healthful, healthy through prevention rather than treatment. 
And I'm sure you're going to hear that type of, of definition over and over again. But I think it helps people understand if, if you really explain it as the patient being a group of people rather than an individual. And, and the other key thing is it's about prevention, not treatment. Right. So could you just expound a little further with what you started with uh, environmental health and how it relates to public health? Yeah, I'd love to. So environmental health is probably one of the most important practices in public health because really there's so many simple things that you can do as an environmental health practitioner or with an understanding of environmental health to prevent people from getting sick. So let's just take the example, we're getting into mosquito season here now, right? So I don't know about you, but I've already seen mosquitoes and it's only early May, right? And as the the temperature starts getting warmer and, and we have these periods of rainfall, where rain can gather, you know, in, in little places around your home, you know, including things like bird baths, or maybe you left a coffee cup out and water's been in there and it's been sitting out for a couple of weeks. You know, the easiest thing to do to prevent exposure from mosquito bites is to get rid of standing of water around your house. Now you don't need to have a degree in environmental health to do that. So everybody can participate in those types of things, but, you know, ramping it up, the environmental health practitioners then, the easiest thing we can do from a practitioner perspective is surveillance, is, you know, looking for places that are community sources of of standing water and then eliminating those sources as well. So it's really about eliminating sources in the environment that can lead to exposures to people that might make them sick. And I, th- I just think mosquitoes is, is an example that everybody can understand because everybody gets bitten by mosquitoes. And it is a, a, a vector-borne disease is a huge component of environmental health. So based on that, how best can we then rally our communities to be more involved um, in focusing on the health of the of the environment as well as the health of their own communities? I think at a basic level, I think, you know, a lot of people don't understand or don't have an awareness of what environmental health is. And this is you know, demonstrated to me over and over again when I meet new people and they ask me what I do and I tell them, I, you know, I teach environmental health and no one ever says, oh, what's that? You know, what does that mean? They just go, oh, okay. And and I think people under, think they understand that, you know, environmental health means I'm, you know, an environmentalist, you know, carrying a flag to, to stop fossil fuels um, and, and its impact on climate change. But it's that is part of it, but it's really the 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 smaller scale stuff, you know, in your neighborhood, in your community. And I think just helping people understand that what what the environment is. You know, it, we're not talking about large ecosystems. We're talking about your backyard, and we're talking about the way you manage your sewage and the water that you drink. I, I think it's been said many, many times, um, and it's kind of our rallying cry in environmental health, is that environmental health affects everyone 
every day. And from the moment you, you get out of bed in the morning to the, the moment you go to bed in the evening, you're exposed to so many uh, risks, you know, environmental risks. Um, the air you breathe, the water you drink, the food you eat. So, you know, I think maybe we take it a little bit for granted that we've got these environmental health practitioners making sure that we are min absolutely minimizing the, the, the potential for people to get sick. And I, I know that's kind of a long answer, but I think helping people think about it more about how it affects their day-to-day -day life rather than, oh, this is something, you know, let's keep the environment clean for future generations. That's part of it, but it's not, probably not the most important thing for public health today. Great. And I, I like the, the idea that we need to make this relatable to everyday lives of our community members. And you just mentioned climate health uh, or rather climate issues. How is that important in environmental health as well as public health? There has been a lot of conversations, diverse opinions, a lot of research, and there was money and funding towards that. And then the funding was cut. How important is the climate in environmental health and in public health in general? So, yeah, so you look at, you know, first, you, we need to understand that climate is uh, trends, you know, long-term trends. And it's not the same thing as weather. So weather is, you know, the, what's happening today, what's you know going to happen tomorrow. Um, so before I answer your question, I, I always just like to contextualize it into thinking about the difference between climate and weather in that you know climate is is going to determine what your wardrobe is so if you live in a warm climate you know you're going to have shorts and t-shirts and sandals weather is going to determine what you wear today so if you live in a warm climate you might not have a winter coat in your closet but there might be a day that you need to wear a winter coat so climate is you know, much broader and it's really based on long-term trends. And in a lot of ways, it's more difficult to uh, predict climate than it is, or I'm sorry, to predict weather than it is climate. Even though we can look and see you know, what happened yesterday and determine what's coming up tomorrow. We've got, we've got historical trends in climate that help us make projections into the future. So let me just you know, start by, by ex explaining the difference between climate and weather. Now, climate, the trends we see in climate is really important to environmental health. And, and again, we can look at just one, and that is, you know, the historic data shows us that our temperatures have been rising. And as our temperatures rise, a lot of different things happen. And I can go back to the mosquitoes example. Mm -hmm. Mosquitoes that currently, for example, the United States that carry the malaria, malaria parasite exist in the United States but we don't have malaria endemic because the parasite is not in the mosquitoes. These parasites are very sensitive to temperature changes. And as the temperature changes and keeps changing, there is potential for that parasite to become, you know, endemic in the US. And next thing you know, we have outbreaks of malaria in this country and none of us are immune. So climate change affects a wide range of environmental conditions that can lead to public health outcomes. 
Awesome. That is, it's a really wonderful response and has even helped me understand better the difference between the environment um, uh, and climate and public health. And I just wanted to bring it home a little bit to some of your, um, the works that you have published. Um, I see in your books that there's a prevailing theme of social justice, inequalities and health disparities. So why are you interested in social justice and health disparities and why Appalachia? So, you know, one of the things that has always, I guess, troubled me about environment, the relationship between environment and health is that there are so many people who have um, adverse health outcomes just because of where they live. Now, you and I both understand social determinants of health, and there are lots of different factors that contribute to how healthy people are. And I, and I think in, in a lot of ways, um, people think about, well, lifestyle. You know, lifestyle is the reason why people have diabetes. Lifestyle is the reason why people are overweight or obese. But to me, I, I'm more interested in understanding what is it about the place that people live in that also contributes to their health. And if we look at a situation like Appalachia, for example, you know, we have the highest rates of obesity and diabetes in the country. And of course, some of that is lifestyle related, but there are other factors that are beyond the control of people who are experiencing these health outcomes. And in a lot of ways, it comes down to just where they live. And I think, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, the American Public Health Association talked about the relationship between zip code and health. Mm -hmm. And in in my, my mission, you know, over the past 15, 20 years is to draw attention to um, rural areas and living in rural and underserved areas and just the conditions in which people live and how that affects health. I'm not saying that, you know, it's any more or less important than lifestyle. I'm just trying to draw attention to it. And these are things that I, I refer to as inequities. So they're, they're controllable th through perhaps um, policy interventions in terms of like dealing with poverty and, and education. But then there are just where people live is is sometime not in their control and they're exposed to environmental conditions that negatively negatively impact their health. Good. So that people understand when you talk about where people live, could you describe Appalachia? Um, you know, people have heard the name, but for context purposes, what is Appalachia? Right. So that is a there's really there's really not a a um, standard answer to that question. It's easy to say, well, Appalachia consists of 420 counties. It covers 13 states. The only state completely within Appalachia is West Virginia. It stretches from uh, western New York all the way down to Mississippi and Alabama. And you know you can you can look at a map and you can get a sense of okay this is where Appalachia is and it's those are those geographic boundaries are defined by the federal government and if you're in the Appalachian region as defined by the federal government you get a little more attention for funding and and, and infrastructure projects than perhaps some counties outside of the region. However, you ask you ask people from the region 
what is Appalachia? And you're going to get a range of, of answers. Some of, some of the answers are really tied to place, you know, to their, their neighborhood, to the mountains, to, um, you know, their neighbors and to the extractive industries that exist here. Some of it is tied to um, culture. It's not homogenous. I mean, think about a county in northwestern New York compared to a county in West Virginia, and it's really difficult to say this is what Appalachia is because it is not. It, it's it's diverse. It's rich. It's poor. It's white. It's black. It's you know um, in the mountains, not in the mountains. There's there's a lot of diversity in the region. Um, and you know it's it's not just defined by political boundaries. Awesome. And so we've also thrown out words like social justice and health disparities. Could you explain those a little further? Mm-hmm. So the social justice piece, I, I I lump environmental justice under this category of social justice, and really I focus more on environmental justice which became an actual movement in the early 1980s when research was done, just doing basic geographic information systems. Research was done by the United Church of Christ where they took a look at um, neighborhoods that had hazardous facilities located in them in the country, in the United States. And they identified the key indicator of whether or not there was a hazardous facility in a neighborhood was race. And that these places, these hazardous facilities were more likely to be located in communities of color than any other community. And so for, you know, since that time in the early 1980s, it it became a movement. Um, President Clinton had an executive order about environmental justice and, and it became defined as meaningful involvement of people in, in making decisions about the environment. Environmental injustice now is when you have communities that are disproportionately impacted by environmental issues. And in Appalachia, for example, many communities, many places in the region are disproportionately impacted by coal, whether it's coal mining or coal transportation or burning coal. There are impacts in the Appalachian region that are not experienced other places. So it really has to do with disproportionate impacts, but environmental justice is a movement kind of under that social justice category. And then it leads to health disparities because health disparities, while they're always going to exist, you're always going to have disparities, you know, between men and women, between old and young, some of the disparities that don't have to exist that are controllable again, like I said earlier about environmental inequities, become inequities. They become, they move from disparities to inequities because if we could minimize the environmental exposures, maybe we wouldn't have differences in health status that are often identified as disparities when sometimes they really are inequities. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And this helps us understand that, you know, behavior change or any other types of changes to the environment, to how we eat, we cannot um, expect an individual to make those changes on their own. There are also other factors 
playing a role in influencing the extent to which um, individuals can change their behavior. And one of those factors is policy. So in your book, Sound Science, Junk Policy, Environmental Health Science, and the Decision-Making Process, you address how policy and decision-making impact environmental health. So could you go um, over that a little bit more? Sure. Like that, that book is my first book. They came right after I left uh, work at the Ohio Environmental Protection Agency. And I actually started writing it while I was still employed there. And it was really, in a lot of ways, it was born out of frustration. Um, it was born out of frustration that there are so many good scientists at Ohio EPA and at U.S. Environmental Protection Agency as well. And they do such good work. But when it comes at, at, during the time that I was at EPA and then moving into when I came to Ohio University, there was this rallying cry in at, mostly at the federal level that, oh, well, that's junk science. That's just junk science. We're not going to pay attention to it. And it was really, I don't agree with the results, so I'm going to call it junk science. And so I just was getting more increasingly frustrated because I saw my colleagues, you know, gathering evidence, doing really good science. And then with just one one interview, a politician was able to just dismantle, you know, what they spent years doing. And and really my thought was at the time that it's really not the science is good. There's there's sound science, there's good science, but the policy decisions are often not made based on that good science. And I think we're, we're starting to see that now more than ever, um, that scientists, even when there's good scientists, science is being ignored. I, I'm not saying that science needs to be the, you know, the most important. There, there's a lot of factors that go into policy mm -hmm. decisions, but just to ignore science or label it as junk science, it, it just really frustrates me. And I think that book was really born out of that frustration to kind of draw attention to the fact that, you know, science is good. It's the decisions that are being made that perhaps are junk. And how do we get our communities um, involved in understanding the decisions that are made about them and getting them on this movement of social justice? Yeah, so, so there's, there's a kind of a push now, I think, that is both good and bad. So there's, especially in the environmental um, health field, there is this, this movement towards citizen science. So citizen science involves people in your neighborhood to collect data. And it can range anywhere from like, here's a little personal air monitor to collect this air, air quality data to, you know, go down to your creek and take a sample and we'll have it analyzed. So when you get citizens engaged in collecting data in their communities, you, I think you increase the understanding of the scientific process. And, you know, they maybe citizens then feel a little more empowered and, and they can ask questions about why the data that they gathered is not being used in the decisions that they, that are being made. Um, so I, that has, that's kind of a positive aspect of citizen science, but the negative thing is I, I fear that we get to the point where we rely on people to collect the data for us because we don't have the resources to do it ourselves. And there's lots of issues, you know, with 
how valid the, the data is and, and all of that. So, you know, that could backfire a little bit. But but overall, I think that the involving citizens in, in scientific pursuits is never really a bad thing. Um, so understanding, you know, how data is collected and, and what happens to it after it, you know, leaves the lab, I think is helpful there. Does that answer that question? Yes, it does. And, and I think it's okay. important for them to know what is happening um, because mm -hmm. they tend to look at science as this other thing. Um, but it's just a fancy name of, hey, let's see what's going on in our communities. And I think when we do that citizenry um, kind of science and research with them where they understand why they need to focus on those issues, I think it makes um, a huge difference. So you talked um, about the frustration that you had when you were working at EPA and this book that you published in 2002 and now we're in 2020. Do you see any difference in how, you know, science is received and how it's being interpreted at the policy level? Well, I'll tell you, it's just been fascinating. And, and you know, the time that we're living in right now, um, I, I never would have imagined that every news reporter would be able to say the word epidemiology and would understand, you know, what it is. I, I feel like people can actually explain what epidemiology is. So that's very heartening, you know, to see that there's a lot of talk about science and a lot of talk about public health, you know, and, and it, it, it's become part of everyday conversation. But I don't, I, it's the, it's the same thing, you know, what that was going on when I, it, that, you know, led me to, to put my thoughts down in a book um, in the early 2000s. Um, if, Many of our policymakers, if they do not agree with the results of the studies, just just you know call the science bogus, and it's it's frustrating all over again. Maybe I should write a a new edition of that book because the more things change, the more they change they stay the same. I guess that saying goes. So you know, on the one hand, it's really exciting to to hear people talking about public health and about scientists, and you know, understanding what all goes into it. But on the other hand, it's you know, and and there's more at stake now than there ever has been, you know, more at stake. I mean, I, I it's frustrating that climate science is is um, being denied, and our pol our policies are you know, are not in step with the rest of the United States policies are not in step with most of the rest of the world in terms of climate change. But the stakes for this public health crisis are even higher. And I feel like we should be paying more attention to the science um, when it comes to policymaking than we are. Great, so a follow up to that, what role does environmental health play in this current pandemic? And how's that related to public health? So I think we still have a lot to learn about how this coronavirus is spread. But the early reports that I've I've you know read about um, from pretty reputable people, or is, is that it appears that bats might be the um, source of the virus, and if this is a zoonotic disease, and that's right in the environmental health wheelhouse, environmental health practitioners wheelhouse. Um, so the role. <clears throat> It's it's too late to obviously too late to prevent the spread of the coronavirus, but 
Controlling vector-borne diseases is, you know, a, a crucial element of environmental health practice. Um, then just, you know, the, the spread, what environmental health practitioners are going to be tasked with as, especially as communities and places start reopening is more than ever making sure that food is safe, that food is being handled so that people aren't going to get sick from their food. Um, environmental health practitioners are also involved in things like inspecting um, barbershops and tattoo parlors, um, pools and schools. I mean, the, the inspection component is really a pr the, the critical preventive element in environmental health. And I, I think that once the, the economy starts to reopen, even if it starts opening slowly in phases, I think your local environmental health practitioners are going to be really, really busy. Great. So what advice would you give a student interested in environmental health? So it, I think that it's a great career and I think that there are going to be jobs. Um, I, I see the, the job prospects as being good. Um, it is not a field, just like public health, that you're going to get rich in. Um, but it is, there are rewards in other ways. Um, it is, you know, requires that you like a little bit of science, but that you're, you also like to investigate things. So when you see a problem, you are driven to figure out what caused it and what can I do so this doesn't happen again? And in a lot of ways, you know, the day-to-day -day environmental health is, you know, just like any other job, can be kind of mundane. We're going to do this again. <clears throat> but sometimes it gets really exciting. And um, there's a lot of variety. So so that is, you know, if, if that's the, the type of career or that's the type of person you are, then it's definitely the field for you. So before I let you go, one last question. What aspects of your work and in, in environmental health, in public health, that has excited you the most, that has resonated with you? Uh, I, I think even though it's kind of outside of the environmental and social justice issue, I, I really started when I was at EPA, um, I was involved in, and in charge of doing a lot of work with public communication and really specifically communicating about the risks. So what kind of risks do you face from the environment? So, you know, it comes down to risk communication and it's always fascinated me. And I'm sure you see this in, in um, other public health fields as well, mm -hmm. that some things people are afraid of aren't really that big of a risk. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you look at things like People, people were afraid of Ebola when it came, we had a, a case in the United States. People got very, very concerned, but the risk was pretty low at that time that you were going to be infected with Ebola. Now the risk with coronavirus is very different. It's, it's high, we would say it's a high risk, but we still have people as we've seen recently that do not believe that it's a risk and you know that affects their behavior so that's always fascinated me 
what what are these aspects of these issues that contribute to how people perceive risks and what can we do as public and environmental health professionals to communicate about these risks so that people will modify behaviors as needed i haven't solved that problem you know and i've been at this for 25 years um but so it'll keep me going probably for another 25 but it just it's fascinating to me I think it's fascinating, as you said, to anyone who's in this field of health, um, trying to motivate people to change behavior. And it's interesting that you brought up communication. Um, We have a speaker this week uh, who's a health communication expert, and I'm hoping that they'll help us understand how best can we uh, you know, communicate, talk to people and get them to to change um, or to embrace the information that we're providing them, or even just negotiate um, some of this information that will be helpful for them. And so I I definitely look forward to that interview. Um, So I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. This was really intriguing. Um, I have learned a lot and I appreciate what environmental health is um, and continues to be in the larger realm of public health. Thank you, Caroline. It was fun. Okay. So we shall talk again soon. Have yourself a great day.